We're going to continue this morning in our series called Reconciled, um, uh, In Christ and with Each Other, and that's the, the name of our series that we have been in since uh, early January, kind of starting off the year 2022. And I want to continue in this series understanding that we are doing so in the shadow of what we experienced last Sunday evening. Many of you were here last Sunday evening as we held our what we called our repentance and restoration service, uh, a service that in which you heard from our lay elders and pastors come forward and confess based on the listening sessions that we had with all of you, six specific things that we saw in our body that as leaders we were responsible for. And we shared with all of you um, those things that we viewed as being responsible for, and we apologized for those six specific things. And then after that time that we had of confession, we invited, we being the lay elders and pastors, invited you all, if you wanted to, to covenant with us in behaving and in living differently with each other, in, in ways that we hope are more Christ-like, in ways that we hope are more honoring. Um, and so kind of the symbol of that is that we walked out of this worship center and out into our patio area, and we signed River Rock. We put our names to it, in which we dropped those River Rocks into a bin out there in the patio area, saying that, yes, I will covenant with the leadership to, to, to live differently, to speak differently, to be more Christ-like in our attitudes, in our actions, and in our words. And so we did that. And for those of you who were able to tune in on Zoom but not be here, be here in person, if you wanted to sign a rock, you will have the opportunity to do that this morning after the service. And uh, that would be a great time if you choose to covenant with us. But here's the thing that I want to do and unpack for the next four weeks. Is there were actually four covenant statements that we shared with all of you. And so what I want to do for the next four weeks is unpack those covenant statements. In other words, many of you signed up to say, yes, I will covenant with the, with the leadership on these. Now let me explain what you covenanted with and what that all means. <laughs> right? Let me, let me hopefully flesh out, if you will, what it is that you actually signed. You're very trusting, by the way. You're very, I have some documents out there that I'd like you to sign, sight unseen. And you would do it, and I would do it, because we love each other and we trust each other, and how could the pastor ever mislead people? Trust me, pastors mislead. It happens. Um, and so this morning, I want to start off with the first covenant statement that we had listed. And the covenant statement says this, to always be gracious in our words and deeds towards one another, and to gently admonish one another when needed. Let me, let me just say that again. Keep that statement up there for just a little bit. Let it hang there. I want you guys to digest those words. Um, to always be gracious in our words and deeds towards one another and to gently admonish one another when needed. That is a multifaceted statement. In other words, there can be multiple ways in which we could apply what that means, and how to live that out. So this morning, I'm only going to show one dynamic or one aspect of how I look at what this means to live out, what this covenant statement means to live out. And 
to do that, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that once I begin reading it, if you have at any time in the, in, the, in the church, whether it's here at Summit Ridge or elsewhere, chances are you might be familiar with this passage. It is out of Matthew 18, and we're going to start at, verses, at verse 15, and we're going to look at how do we do this? How do we, in, in, in many ways, um, begin to live out being gracious in our words and deeds and gently admonishing one another when, when it is needed. I, I think that Jesus gives us an idea, a blueprint, a way for us to do this. And it's in, these, in this passage here. I'm going to read this passage through, and then we'll go back and dissect it a little bit. And it says this. Jesus, these are Jesus' words, beginning with verse 15. Now, if your brother sins, and by the way, let me just clarify something here. Um, it's not just brothers. Can we just understand that? Men aren't the only ones who sin. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm not, I better move on. Uh, <laughs> all that to say is this, brothers and sisters. Now, if your brother or sister sins, and brother is, bored, is a way that Jesus was, I believe, saying that, you know, giving an example here. Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. <sighs> Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And ends with verse 20, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. I have, if you want to be honest with me, and I will be honest with you, I have never heard perhaps one verse used out of context more so than that verse, verse 20. Amen? Right? You, you may, if you've been in church long enough and you show up at a prayer meeting, and there's only like a handful of people, right? And immediately someone will sometimes say, well, you know, this, the Bible says where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. Not to say that Jesus isn't there. That's not the point. The point is, that's not where that verse is coming out of. It's actually coming out of conflict, coming out of disagreement, where there has been sin committed, where there has been, uh, you know, a, 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 a disintegration, if you will, a division uh, in, in a relationship, now, what I find so interesting about this passage here is that I think it assumes a few things. It assumes a few things. One is this. One is this. It assumes that Christians will sin. Safe assumption. <laughs> Brothers and sisters. I think Jesus makes an assumption here, or at least it, it seems to point to this. It, it is as though Jesus could have said, in the unlikely event... In the off chance, in the minute possibility, a Christian sins. No, no, no. Jesus just comes out and flatly say it. If your brother sins against you, in other words, 
We sin. Brothers and sisters, even as Christ followers, we are sinners. We are sinners. We have not yet arrived. We are not yet perfected. We still sin. And for anyone out there who is a non-believer, who in some way may have had a picture of a Christian as being one who never sins, as one who is perfect in every way, I want to say two things to you. One is, I'm sorry for whatever was told to you, probably by Christians, or shown to you, probably by Christians, that led you to believe that we are perfect. And number two is, we're not. And by the way, let me just take it a step further, brothers and sisters, for those of us who know Jesus. Not only do we know we are not sinners, but like Paul, we ought to realize we are the worst of them. We ought to realize our sin more so than any other person, particularly non-believers on the face of this earth. We ought to be absolutely you know, real and honest about the fact that we sin. So that's the first assumption I think that this passage deals with. Here's the second assumption. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. We can't sweep it under the rug. We can't turn the other cheek. We can't ignore it. We cannot go into a different universe or world or reality we cannot simply turn away from it and say, not my monkey, not my circus, kind of thing. Sin has to be dealt with. And here's the thing, it has to be dealt with among each other as followers of Jesus Christ. Has to be dealt with. Here's another assumption I think that this passage leads to. Reconciliation is possible. Reconciliation is possible. Healing can happen. A fractured relationship can once again be made whole. It is possible. It is possible for sin to be forgiven, for a person to be made whole. It is possible for two people who are once apart can be brought back together again. It is possible. And yet here is the fourth assumption. While it is possible, reconciliation is not always probable. It may not always happen. It may not always happen. And church history is unfortunately filled with examples of great people, great Christian leaders who never quite could get along with each other and were in fractured relationships. Even early on in the Reformation movement, Martin Luther, who for all of his wonderful things that he did to start off this movement. He was not a perfect person by any means. He, was, he could be crass. He could be rude. He was certainly in many ways probably anti-Semitic. But more than that, if you disagreed with him or he disagreed with you, there was no mercy in his life pretty much for you. There was another contemporary of his called Ehrlich Zwingli. We don't hear much about him because he died early. He was kind of the chaplain, if you will, in, in Zurich, and he was also, as a, as a result of that, would also go off to battle with armies that were going off to wage war. Well, he happened to do that one time, but, but Martin Luther and him had a big disagreement over all things, over communion. Over communion. Martin Luther, although he broke away from the Catholic Church, the apple does not always fall that far from the tree. 
And where in the Catholic Church, they actually believe that the body and blood actually becomes the, you know, are actually infused into the bread and cup, that they actually become the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's what a Catholic believes. Martin Luther, while he kind of rejected that in some way, still kept some aspect of it saying, you know what, this is still the body and blood of Jesus in some ways. It's over, it's around, it's with, but it doesn't actually become really confusing stuff. And early Zwingli said, no, 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 no. It isn't that. It's all about do this in remembrance of me. It's a symbol. And they would go back and forth. And Martin Luther would say, but Jesus said, this is my body and blood. And early Zwingli would say, but do this in remembrance of me. And they had this great debate. And they disagreed vehemently with each other. And then Ehrlich Zwingli dies in battle as a chaplain. Upon hearing this, Martin Luther said, well, essentially, we know who was right. <laughs> essentially. That if Ehrlich Zwingli hadn't died, he goes on and really fleshes out by saying that it's good that Ehrlich Zwingli died because if he continued to live, the church would have ceased to exist. The church would have died. It would have, I mean, seriously, brothers in Christ vehemently disagreeing with each other. Christian history is rife with examples of fractured relationships. And, and the reality is, is that while reconciliation is possible, reconciliation may not always be probable. While it's always there, it, it, can, it does exist, it is, an, it is, it is absolutely a, you know, a possibility. It may not always happen. It may not always happen. There are fracturing of Christians from one another over, yes, things like positions on communion. Do you know, and I'm going to say something probably controversial to you. Come talk to me afterwards. We spend more time arguing, for instance, how Catholics are lost in the faith. How Catholics don't know Jesus. And you know what the Catholics are saying? How lost the Protestants are that they don't know Jesus. You know what the Eastern Orthodox are saying? How lost they all are because they don't know Jesus. Right? We spend more time trying to tear people down because they don't necessarily believe the way that we believe and that, you know what, well, as a, and I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm a Protestant, brothers and sisters. I'm one of you. I'm a Protestant. You know what the root word of Protestant is? Protest. We're still protesting against the Catholic Church. Brothers and sisters, get over it. Get over it. You know, we're still trying to figure out and say, well, Catholics are wrong. But we're right. Let me just say, whenever we get into those kinds of arguments, we better watch ourselves. And so we, we, we put these divisions between us that and I, I think Jesus, when he was praying that prayer before he was eventually crucified in the, in the garden, he's praying this beautiful prayer that you can read about in the Gospel of John, in which he says, I want my people to be unified, and how much break his heart to find us all disunified. How all of a sudden now we have just fractured over, over all sorts of things. All sorts of things. I tease all the time, right? I really do. Like our mode of baptism here at Summit Ridge. I always tease, we do it the Jesus way, three times forward, immersed, right? Because that's the way Jesus, no, he wasn't baptized that way. I kid, I have fun with it. You know, there are, there are people who literally, brothers and sisters, just looking for ways to, to have disagreements, it seems like, 
to distinguish themselves from others, as opposed to say, you know what? There's a lot more we have in common than there is that we have in disagreement. And let me just say this. I'm going to take it even a step further. Um, Particularly, and I'm going to speak specifically to evangelicalism in this country. Far too long, far too long, have we been mired and caught up in this idea that we have to go to war. That we have to go to war with everyone. That we have to go to war. That we are under attack. And that we have to go to war. Our very freedoms as Christians are being violated. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters. Talk to people who've been able to travel this world and have served as missionaries. My hunch is they will probably tell you we know nothing or very little about what it means to be persecuted in this country. But yet, we have this, this you know, we've, you know, we're part of God's army and we've got to go to war. We've got to war against everyone. And, uh, you know, everyone is a threat to us. And we've got to go out there and we've got to war against everyone. And we train young men even in this idea that men... You've got to go to war. You've got to be the warrior for your family. You've got to be the warrior for your church. And you've got to be the warrior. Let me just say this. Masculinity run amok is awful. Look at me too. Whether you agree with it or not, there's been awful things done. The same can be true on the opposite end as well. There is enough division out there that we... I'd, it would take lifetimes, multiple lifetimes, to try to bring reconciliation to. And yet, as I shared last week, I share this again today, is that as followers of Jesus, we are called to a ministry of what? Reconciliation. We are called to a ministry of reconciliation. It is not a ministry of division. We are called to a ministry of reconciliation. And so, these are some of the assumptions that I think are brought to this passage. Someone once said this, um, ministry is one hard conversation after another. (laughs) Sometimes ministry is one hard conversation after another. So I titled today's message, How to Have the Hard Conversation. How to Have the Hard Conversation. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, If you are alive enough, if you've been in church long enough, whether it's this church or any other church, chances are you will get hurt or you will hurt someone. It's it's inevitable. It's going to, whether you knowingly do it or unknowingly do it, it will happen. It will happen. And, and, And so how do we deal with that stuff? That chances are, if we're in church long enough and if we're here long enough, we may do things that are wrong, that are sinful, that have to be dealt with. And someone is going to have to do it. And I, I want to break it to you today, brothers and sisters. Even though I'm the pastor or one of the pastors here of this church, it's tempting to say, I pay Dan to do that. There are some things I can't even do that it wouldn't be healthy for me to do. And so what I want to do today is I want us to look at what is it that Jesus sets up as a pattern and then I want to talk about and end it about how sometimes we really mess up that pattern. How we really take that pattern that Jesus modeled for us or shared with us and how sometimes 
we don't always do the best job of it. Does that make sense? So I want to talk about, there are, there are four specific things that Jesus, I think, lays out for us to follow when we've got to eventually have that hard conversation with another believer. By the way, this is with another believer. That's the context. A brother or sister in Christ. And the first thing that Jesus lays out is this. Go and talk to the person. Privately. And let me add in there, A-S-A-P. Go and talk to this person. Try to work it out between the two of you. Share honestly with that person what that person did or said that was wrong and hurtful. Go to that person. Go to that person. But here's the thing. That is simple, but it's not easy. Right? How many of you, and there, there are oftentimes, there, there's angst that's oftentimes created when we have to deal with conflict. Many of us, myself included, are conflict averse. There are oftentimes three types of people, I think, when it comes to conflict. And let me demonstrate what that means in some ways, or not demonstrate, but rather illustrate it. There's a burning house. There are oftentimes three reactions to a burning house. One is to run away. I want no part of this. I'm out of here. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to be safe. I'm out of here. They run away from the burning house, right? The burning house, by the way, signifies conflict, okay? There's a second person who looks at a burning house or looks at conflict and says, I'm all in. I'm all there. I'm all there. I'm, I'm running towards it. And they run towards it, you know, guns blaring. They love it. They I don't understand those people. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't understand those people. I don't understand those people who just relish going to going, get into conflict. And there's a third group, and that's me. The third group looks at a burning house and stands there and says, Oh, gee, dear Jesus, please put that fire out. <coughs> dear Jesus, Send holy angels with buckets of water to douse those flames that I will never, ever have to go into that house at all. That I will never have to deal with that. Com oh, Jesus, in your miraculous powers that I know you possess and that you have, you sit on the throne. Make things well again. <laughs> That's me. That's me. That's me. And by the time I realized this fire ain't going out. No. No. Oh, another room just caught on fire. Oh, now the, oh, the flames are coming out of the top. Oh, the, the yard is getting burnt. Oh, come, it's spreading. By the time I realized that, I got to move in, but it's oftentimes too late. The house is burned to the ground. It's not salvageable. Now, honestly, how many of you run towards the fire? How many of you run away from the fire? And how many of you stand there praying, oh, Jesus, put out the fire? <laughs> many of us. By the way, there was only one person who raised their hand who said, I run towards that thing. Bring it on. Fire brigade person reporting for duty. You know? There are, unfortunately, times that we just are conflict-averse, and for good reasons. 
We are fear of, for instance, upsetting others. We don't want to make the situation worse. So if I go to that person and tell them what they have done that was hurtful or, or wrong against me, I might actually make things worse. And, and there's maybe a fear of being misunderstood. This is one of my fears, by the way, of being misunderstood. Uh, if you've been around me long enough, sometimes I will always, I'll usually end a conversation by saying, do you understand? Right? How many of you have heard that from me before? Do you understand? Yeah, all of you. You don't have to... <clears throat> You're such an affirming congregation. Yeah, do you know why I say that? Because I'm so misunderstood. I think I'm speaking clearly. But apparently I'm, I'm, I'm not always that clear. I majored in communi- One of my majors in college was communication. You think I would have had this down. The other one was political science, so maybe those two combined, I'm not as clear as I ought to be, and I'm making room for myself, and I'm being very, you know... Um, careful, if you will, gray area, if you will, buying myself time. But, you know, there, there are some times that you might be fearing being misunderstood. Here's the other thing, is fear of getting hurt even more than you already are. Maybe in going to this person, this person will not, not only not respond well, but they'll go off on you even further. They'll yell at you even more. Maybe there's a fear of creating division and angst in the church. And we know what the church expects of us, right, brothers and sisters? The church wants us all to get along. We don't want division. And so sometimes we think, well, maybe I ought to just shoulder the burden. I ought to just keep it to myself. I ought to just keep it inside. Because I don't want to cause the church any more hurt than that. I don't want to make any person's you know, day particularly bad or anything else like that. So I'll just, I'll just keep it to myself and I'll just pray to Jesus about it. I'll just pray, Jesus, take this hurt from me. Oh, Jesus, help me, heal me in my heart of this, what this person did. And then and that's not bad, but how many of you have found that, man, that hurt still is there? That sometimes it doesn't actually solve the issue. I mean, it just, and maybe, and here's the thing is that, in fact, maybe, just do the opposite. It begins to fester. The pain just sits in there and it just festers and festers and it's growing and growing until finally something totally unrelated to what was going on breaks the camel's back, opens up the dam, and out gushes all of this pain and hurt towards someone that maybe had nothing to do with what their pain and hurt was there for in the first place. Have you ever done that? Right? I mean, I think about this with Cain and Abel. I mean, in Genesis, remember the two brothers, right? The first murder after sin had entered the world. Cain was offering things to God, but obviously his offerings were not as good as Abel's were. And, and Cain knew this, and he was angry, and he was frustrated about this. There was conflict within him. And I love what God says to Cain. He says, Cain, you've got to deal with this because sin is crouching at your door ready to pounce and if you do not deal with this conflict it is going to overtake you you've got to go work this out and we know what happened he didn't and now we get to say cute little bible jokes about why didn't cain get to do this because he wasn't able (laughs) i guess you haven't heard those (laughs) right Cain and Abel jokes. But, it's, but behind that is really hard stuff. 
Brothers and sisters, one of the things that we as leadership here at Summit Ridge discovered as part of what kind of led to a lot of hurt in our church is oftentimes, here's how sometimes, not often, oftentimes how I think conflict is, is, is dealt with, is if someone has a problem with someone else in the congregation, they don't go to that person, they go to whom? The pastor or an elder. And they say, essentially, I have a problem with so-and-so. Essentially, and, and you may not know this, you may not mean this, but essentially what you're saying is, fix my problem. Fix my issue. I have an issue. You get paid. You're the expert. You're the theological you know, king around here, or queen, or whatever it is. You're the one who has a closer connection to God, right? Right? I mean, for some reason, you all, or maybe many of you believe that myself or any of the lay elders or pastors have a closer connection to God than you do. And I just want to break your hearts on this. I don't have any closer connection to God than you do. I don't. It's not as though God and I go golfing every week. We don't. I mean, we, we just don't. It's not as though, you know, it's just not the way that works. And you know what we as leadership oftentimes did? Is we said, yeah, okay, we'll deal with it. And you know what oftentimes happened? <laughs> nothing. Someone said nothing. Yeah, that was one. <laughs> Remember, oh dear Jesus, I'll pray for you. Heal that relationship. Dear, not, there's nothing wrong with praying that. It's a good thing. But there are sometimes when you've got to go and you've got to deal with it. Remember, the promise here is God is with us through this whole process. It's not as though God will do it for us. There's a big difference. And sometimes what happened is we said, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll go and try to deal with it. And that was wrong. What we should have said is, hey, have you gone to talk to that individual? Well, uh... You don't know this person. Fair enough. But have you gone to them? Uh, um, I get it. It's hard. It's hard. And that's why I love the second step here. And Jesus says this. Take a witness and talk to them again. Take a witness and talk to them again. And what I think about this is that Jesus says, don't take, take a witness or two. Don't take someone who's going to be on your side necessarily. Take someone who is a witness to what's being said, to how it's being received, to what the issue is, to how the person who is being spoken to or being shared about the hurt that is being caused by that individual is receiving it or not receiving it. Take a witness. Have someone there who can, who can say, yes, this is what happened in this meeting. This is what took place when these two people talked, have a witness, have someone there that you can trust and that also can in some ways be as impartial as possible, who can just sit there and be a witness and maybe in doing so can maybe help the person to whom was sinning against another person realize what they were doing and maybe come to some sort of reconciliation. Take a witness. This person is to help make sure that maybe this witness is making make sure that things are honest, that what is being shared is accurate, and to help to bring some sort of solution to the conflict. I shared this last Sunday night um, about lack of 
clear communication with all of you when it came to staffing here at Summit Ridge. Whenever it came to a point where there was conflict, almost always I would begin to have a second or a third person or fourth person in with me. Person didn't say anything. It was simply there to witness. As a witness, that's it. And in fact, it, it became almost, it was just like, okay, I, it, it, didn't, it didn't work with me coming to you individually. Now we have a witness to help bring some sort of reconciliation, help hopefully bring some sort of understanding in this whole thing. Bring a witness, and I love this, go and talk to them again. Now Jesus says this, if that still doesn't work, then do this. Take it to the church and talk to them again. Take it to the church and talk to them again. If it still doesn't work, now this application gets a little confusing sometimes, right? Does that mean every relational conflict is to be brought before the whole of the church? Some people would say yes. But let me help you understand something. I think of what this means here. Where two or three are gathered, right? Sometimes churches were really, really, really small too. There weren't always big churches. And it isn't always appropriate in depending upon the venue to present or to share the conflict that's going on depending upon the situation. That sometimes it might be a wider audience nonetheless. It could be leadership, it could be um, a small group of people. It could be whatever it is. And sometimes, yes, it may have to be the entire church. For example, if I do something that's really bad here, you all need to know about it. That has to be presented to the entire church. If Dan is here one Sunday and gone the next, you all need to know why, right? You all need to know why. And hopefully, and I, I believe that this is, would be the case, the lay elders and the rest of the pastors would come before you and say, Dan did this. This is what happened. And this is why he is no longer here. Because I'm a leader in this church, therefore it's appropriate to present it to the entire church. That may not be always appropriate depending on who the person is. Take it to the church. And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, guess what? Treat them as what? A Gentile and tax collector. Now, this is where we as Christians, I think, get a little confusing. And this is in our own faith tradition where I kind of reject. In our faith tradition, Anabaptism and, and in general, uh, Brethrenism specifically, we believe in shunning. Do you know what shunning is? Oh, we all do, right? <laughs> we know what that is. Shunning is just cutting off all communication with you. Shunning is the idea of saying to you, you no longer are, you know, exist in my realm of life. You are no longer here with me. I cut off all communication with you. You are not welcomed here. We just kind of slam the door shut. Sometimes I think that may be how some Christians perceive what Jesus is saying here. And that is in, my, in our faith tradition where I disagree with our reaction to that. That we, that, that yes, we have practiced that in our faith tradition, I don't think here specifically, but in our faith where we have practiced shunning, where we have said to people, you are no longer a part of this body, and we will no longer have anything to do with you, and we just close you out. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says what? To treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. So the question is, how did Jesus teach or tax collectors and Gentiles? He loved them. 
He reached out to them. He had relationships with them. In other words, what Jesus says here essentially is, do it all over again. Do it all over again. Repeat the process. Repeat the process. Do it all over again. In other words, our posture, brothers and sisters, should always be towards reconciliation, not for separation. It should always be bent towards wanting to bring healing, not towards more division. Now, there is responsibility on the other party. If they do not want to meet, if they do not want to talk, if they do want to have a relationship with us, that's okay, fine. But we need to make sure, without a doubt, that we're here. We love you, and we'd love to talk to you. Now, let me say this. This process has been used time and time and time again in churches, this church included, and oftentimes it doesn't go very well, or even worse, because it is misapplied. Let me just tell you areas where this process, at least in the way I've just shared it, specifically as it relates to a brother or sister sinning against us, where it does not necessarily apply in the strict way I've just shared it with you. One is sexual abuse. Absolutely not. Too many churches have used this process when it came to someone who came forward and said, I was sexually abused by a leader, a teacher, or someone in this congregation. And the congregation in response said, well, did you go talk to that person? No way. You never put an abuser in the same room by themselves with the person who was abused. Never do that. That is awful in that that was done. Even by well-known churches in this country, it was done. This process, in the strictest sense that I just shared it, does not apply in that case. There are legal ramifications. There are things that appropriately we need to handle that a little bit differently. We go to the authorities. We take it a step. Here's the other thing. Physical abuse. And, and, and I want to talk to the married couples here. Husbands and wives, and if you look at the stats, husbands, we're the most responsible for this. Most spousal abuse happens from the husband to the wife. Not all, but a vast majority of it. Ladies, if your husband is abusing you, you need to get out. You need to get out. Oh, no, but Dan, the church hates divorce. Yeah. Do you know what God hates even more? People getting abused. Taken advantage of. Oh, and by the way, if you are being abused and you come to us, we will not stick you in a room with your abuser by yourself and having, no, no, we will take this in a totally different direction because this is well beyond, this is legal stuff. This is for, to protect you. Does that make sense? Far too long, we as churches have tried to sweep it under the rug 